0: So today we've covered Genesis 24, and I heard, I heard uh, earlier uh, that somebody said something about it being long, and uh, at least I didn't make you read the first, the you know, context chapters, uh, you know, because we, we started last week in Genesis 12, we're now at 24, and so you can imagine how much we've skipped. Um, good thing we didn't read all those. Two things I want to cover today... Um, two main areas. First is this idea of bridegroom theology. Um, Some of you, this might be new for some of you, this might be kind of old hat for others. This is uh, a clear element of the scriptures, and um, it's the reason we sang that song this morning, Um, Oh, the Beauty of This Man. it, It talks about Jesus as being this bridegroom who's looking for a bride, and that the, the Bible makes it clear today, and, and I'm going to argue today that the church is the bride of Christ, and it's not only does the Bible explicitly say that, but it poetically says that over thousands of chapters. Uh, not only that, but we're also going to look at this idea of narrative pr- and prophecy, and we're going to cover that first. Um, when you come to the scriptures, scripture is a story. Primarily, before you get to the Apostle Paul and before you get to the wisdom literature that Solomon wrote and, you know, Ecclesiastes, uh, Proverbs, some of the, even some of the Psalms, before you get to Paul's writings and the epistles, Scripture is stories. And what I mean by stories is narrative. It is an account of something that happened. And when we say story, we don't mean that it's made up or that it is something that came about through poetic device, or that it was primarily weaved, or that this kind of happened, Genesis 24 kind of happened, but then when Moses was writing it, he embellished a little bit. That's not at all what we're saying when we say narrative. Um, What we're saying when we say narrative is, this is a true historical event that took place. And in it being a true historical event, in the historical event itself, the actions that took place, those actions were prophetic actions, and they point forward to things that um, weren't clear or weren't perfectly evident in that account and so when you're looking for when you're doing what we're doing in these in these in this series when you're looking for symbols and different literary devices that point forward to Christ or that talk about you know a New testament reality that hasn't been fully. Unpacked in the Old Testament. When you're doing that, you have you can't take it too far, Um, or well, you can take it too far. far, You shouldn't take it too far. And the way you don't take it too far is you make sure that your ideas harmonize with the general tenor of Scripture. That is, what you're coming up with sounds in tune, so to speak, with the way the rest of the Bible sounds. It's not, you know, some New idea. For example, um, we didn't cover this back in when we were discussing Noah. But there's this idea that there's these people called the Nephilim, uh, and in the in the accounts of Noah, some people. In the last hundred two hundred years, who have never subjected this idea to the rest of scripture, say that the Nephilim were these like aliens who came down, and uh, there 's no biblical support for that, but they you know read into you know the Nephilim are mentioned twice, one in the Old Testament, one tiny mention in the New Testament, and other than that they 're completely not in the Bible and so there's no biblical no strong biblical clear support for this idea that these Nephilim giant people uh, were 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 aliens yet people read that into the scripture and because they don't get something, they try to explain it away and rather than do that, we are okay with saying that in these historical accounts there are true prophetic events that point forward to Jesus and they tell us about who God is and what God's doing on the earth. And we don't necessarily have to resolve everything. And even in trying to find symbols and types, you can take them too far in the mini story. For example, with Solomon and the Queen of Bathsheba, um, you know, the Queen eventually at some point comes to Solomon and sees the beauty of his uh you know placements that he makes, the the way that he structures his house. That doesn't mean that we need also to, in our evangelistic efforts, we have to buy gold you know cutlery and you know you if you see where I'm going you know we don't have to just because we see a symbol or a type doesn't mean that we take that as far as we possibly can Um, in the midst of doing this you have to use good reason and good judgment and be trained by scripture and the old testament clearly um, makes this case uh, plain First Peter, if you remember, if you were here in our first Peter series, you might have remembered these verses, some great verses. First Peter 1, 10 through 12. Peter describing the Old Testament scriptures, he says, As to this salvation, that is the salvation coming through Jesus, the prophets who prophesied of this grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels have longed to look. So what what Peter is saying here. He is describing the preaching of the New Testament apostles. And if you look at the scriptures in Acts and in, and in Paul's epistles, primarily the New Testament apostles and their writings and their message are, are simply unpacking the Old Testament. When Peter stands up at the day of Pentecost to give his account and verification of what has happened in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, all he's doing is unpacking the Psalms and Joel and that's where we started off this series and if you need convinced of what happened there I'd love for you to get the first uh it was I guess episode 0 in in this series of Christ in the Old Testament but when you look at Galatians Paul is just simply explaining what what the difference was between Abraham's two wives the the son of the bondwoman and the son of the free woman if you look at the book of Hebrews its primary goal is to make it make plain, the symbols and types of the Old Testament. And uh, especially with the sacrificial system and all of that. And so primarily what, what Peter is saying in verse 12 is that these things which were announced to you in the preaching of those who the Holy Spirit had sent, that the Holy Spirit was just confirming what in verse 11, the Spirit of Christ, another name for the Holy Spirit, had shown to the prophets. And so what Peter is by extension Peter is saying that Moses being a prophet who Moses wrote Genesis and Moses in that account in in the writing of Genesis 24 is prophesying things that would come for, come true or come to pass in the person and work of Jesus as God unfolds his eternal covenant of redemption these things are going to become clearer and so Peter is making the case that that this is simply what they were doing in verse 10 it says the prophets who prophesied made careful searches and inquiries just as they did that we too are going back and looking at what they wrote and making careful searches and inquiries to see what they said and so um with that in mind the reason i gave all that very strong support is because some of you will probably think this what we're going to talk about sounds a little weird mainly because you're Western and not Hebrew. But it's not very weird at all. So this idea is bridegroom theology. Some people today call this bridal theology. I like bridal theology, but I like bridegroom theology a little bit more. It's a better term for me, um, mainly because I'm a guy. <laughs> um in the Old Testament, God is married to Israel. Time and time again, he says, I'm, I'm married to you. Israel, however, doesn't stay faithful to her husband. She plays the harlot and serves other gods. She goes after Baal, Baal poles and Asherah poles, and um, she, she plays the harlot. And God redeems her time and again. In fact, the whole book of Hosea, Hosea is a prophet who marries a prostitute. And that is his ministry. So just you know, you get to share tracks. Uh, just be thankful you didn't have to be Hosea. In the New Testament, however, Christ is seen as married to the bride. He gives himself up for her, and the Spirit in turn prepares the church after Christ is ascended to the right hand of the Father. When when the Holy Spirit is poured out, the church the church is being prepared by the Holy Spirit. And so, at not only what we do in communion, but also finally the final culmination at the end of the age in the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are clear, concrete, and biblical, biblically supported ideas and concepts. And I want to make, just so I don't get any tomatoes or stoning later after this service, I want to convince you that this is biblical. Isaiah 54, 5. And by the way, these, these simple verses are not even close to maybe a maybe a tenth of what is in the scripture. Isaiah 54, 5, speaking to Israel, Isaiah says, for your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. The redeemer was a concept in the Old Covenant that if if a woman was married and that husband either left her um, without there being any iniquity between them, or if that husband died, the next of kin to that husband uh, would redeem his brother's uh, heritage. So um, that sounds weird in our uh, in our culture, but that was that's Hebrew. That's Hebrew culture. That's the the way that they made sure that the woman wasn't going to be poor, because in that day women were <clears throat> not as skilled, and it was more agrarian, and so a woman probably couldn't farm, although she might be able to have a trade. God set it up in such a way that men would come and redeem their brothers' wives if their brothers died or left. <clears throat> Isaiah 62, 5. For as a young mar- man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. <clears throat> as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. So Isaiah is saying, your God is going to rejoice over you as a bridegroom. Jeremiah three fourteen, The New American Standard gets this, gets this translation terrible so uh i went with new king james version return O black O backsliding children says the lord for i am married to you i will take you one from a city and and two from a family and i will bring you to zion zion is considered to be in the old testament scriptures um basically the the blessed glorious state of true communion with god whether that's heaven or being in in the new testament who knows <clears throat> so, not only is this an Old Testament idea, this is a New Testament idea, and it gets, gets a lot more treatment. By the way, we're totally skipping Song of Solomon. So, for those of you who think it's just a Song of Solomon issue, I'm intentionally not going there to show you that it's not just a Song of Solomon issue. Bridegroom theology in the New Testament. Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, who gave a wedding feast for his son that king is in that parable the father and the son is is jesus and the br- the wedding is the wedding at the end of the age in second corinthians 11:2 paul says i betroth you to christ he says for i am jealous for you with a godly jealousy for i betroth you to one husband so that to christ i might present you as a pure virgin so paul is saying to this congregation in the city of corinth this local tiny expression of the body of Christ, Paul in establishing that church betrothed them and made, you know, in the redemption that is brought through the response of faith to the gospel, they were betrothed as a pure virgin. In Romans 7, 4, he says, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another and to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. Ephesians 5:22 uh, through 33, we're not going to read all of it, just verses 25 through 27. Paul tells husbands to love their wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And then in verse 32, he says, this mystery is great, that is a man and woman becoming two flesh, becoming joined together and becoming one. He says, the mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The most concrete New Testament picture of Jesus being the bridegroom is John the Baptist in John 3 25 through 30. There, therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they said to John, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing from heaven, Uh, nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase and I must decrease. I want to step backwards through that account because because John's speaking somewhat in a parable but it's it's not very it's not very deep and he explains it he says so this joy of mine has been made full uh, a sentence earlier he says the friend of the bridegroom rejoices greatly when he hears the bridegroom's voice so John is saying in the next verse my joy is made full that means he's rejoicing greatly and therefore if he's the friend of the bridegroom he's giving this response uh, to a question about who Jesus is. And he says, My joy is made full when I hear the bride's, bridegroom's voice. And so, therefore, we can concretely know that Jesus is the bridegroom. But also, he says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. What was this question about? The Jews were attempting to bring to John the Baptist a- an element of jealousy. He's saying, in, in in these first few verses, in 26, he says, he who you baptized is now baptizing others. That is, Jesus is preaching and people are coming and repenting and they're getting baptized. And in the midst of that, he, they're trying to say to John, he who you baptized is now exceeding you in disciples and in baptisms. And so they're trying to bring this accusation against Jesus to John and John is not stumbled over it. He says, my joy is made complete, for he who has the bride is the bridegroom. Well, who's the bride in this instance? Those who are baptized and repent from their sins. This is a clear picture of the church. And in fact, I can't imagine it getting any clearer without, you know, instead of John 3:25 through 30 saying this, but rather saying the church is the com- covenant community of those who are redeemed and respond in baptism. You know, we, I mean... God just doesn't write his scriptures like that, but uh, anyway. So hopefully you're convinced that the bridegroom is Jesus, and that's a that's a literary picture. It's a true element of who Jesus is. It uh, this is the way that the scriptures speak to us. We are made in God's image, and God has chosen to use certain things about the way that humans relate to help us understand Him, because you know we i can't speak to you if you speak a different language and and hebrews 1 says god's speaking to us through his son and so so here in genesis 24 we see this amazing picture of of christ but not only that we see an even larger picture of the trinity working in time and in space to prepare a bride for his son and so in this story it's um my as along with many commentators throughout the last two thousand years and probably even further um, saying that this story is a prophetic, true narrative about the way that God works in mankind, and so Abraham takes on uh, the role of the father that is things about Abraham point to the Father, Isaac is the son, and that's no surprise. Um, the servant is the Holy spirit and finally, Rebecca is the bride of Christ, or the church. So we're going to move through each element of this story, and um, hopefully you're going to see how concrete that is, and in so doing, you're you're being trained how to read the Bible, knowing what happens after this point, knowing what came before, and kind of holding all that in in your mind as you read, you're going to see beautiful and wonderful things. How many of you... Kind, who knew we were where we were going, saw something different for the first time today when we were reading it out loud? A few of you. Three. Three. That's great. Three out of 30? or I don't even know how many people. I'm a terrible judge of space and numbers of people. But uh, yeah, I mean, every time you read this account, you're going to see something new, and it's beautiful. So Abraham is the father. This is kind of just a very very quick picture of Abraham being the father in Genesis 24.1. It says, Now Abraham was old and advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. So Abraham sends the servant to go find a bride for his son. And in, in God's side of the story, we're going to look back and forth between this narrative and how God works. God the father wishes to give his son a bride. So in Genesis twenty four one we see that Abraham was old and advanced in age, and in Daniel, God Yahweh is called the Ancient of Days, and also Abraham being blessed in every way is kind of a reminder that God is perfect in all of his attributes and glorious in all of his ways and dealings on the earth. Isaac is the son. In Genesis 24.35, we're kind of jumping ahead to the middle of the story, then I promise we're going to come back. Uh, the servant describing the the son of Abraham, says, The Lord has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich. Now Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age, and he has given him all that he has. In Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 4, the writer of Hebrews s- explains the person and work of Jesus, saying, His son, whom he ap- appointed heir of all things, and then later He has inherited a more excellent name than the angels. That is, Jesus has inherited all that the Father has. Isaac's received a blessing, and all of what Abraham had went to Isaac in the same and like manner. Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man. He has inherited uh, from God all of the title deed to heaven and earth. And um, so where we're going to spend a lot of time this morning is this idea of, of the the servant and how the servant is a picture of the Holy Spirit. The servant honors Abraham working on behalf of the heir. That is, the servant was not working on on his behalf. And in like manner, the Holy Spirit is not primarily here to just exalt himself. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, the function and work of the Holy Spirit is to exalt and to glorify the person and work of Jesus in our hearts, in our lives, in the preaching of the word and in signs and wonders and miracles. Everything that the Holy Spirit does is to exalt Jesus. The fact that the Holy Spirit has throughout time helped the church understand the scriptures is because the Holy Spirit's job is to explain Jesus, and Jesus is the point of the scriptures. And so here in verse 2, it says the servant who had charge of all that he owned. That is the servant had had control of all of Abraham's stuff that's beautiful. Abraham had a bunch of riches and the son had already in verse 35 and 36, it said the son had already received an inheritance of all the things. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit, or sorry, the servant has control of, uh, you you see how it's easy to do that. The servant has control of all that is in Abraham's house. And so the Holy Spirit carries out God's will. And in doing, in, in the midst of doing that, he already is fully God. So the Spirit is God, the Father is God, and the Son is God. In, uh, <clears throat> in John 14, the Holy Spirit is described by Jesus as the Helper. The Helper whom my Father will send uh, is the phrase that we might remember. The servant in this chapter has no name. He is unnamed. And we don't know exactly that it is Eleazar, but in Genesis 15, which we didn't read, today, it said that Eleazar was the heir. As in, Abraham, when he was kind of speaking to God, he said, God, what are you going to do for me because I have no heir? All of my household possessions belong to Eleazar. As in, there was a servant that Abraham had, his oldest servant, who was going to receive everything. And Abraham's kind of like, God, I thought you promised me to make me a father of many nations and and so Eliezer is the oldest servant that Abraham has. It's not clearly mentioned by the Holy Spirit in Genesis 24 that it is Eliezer. But we, we can assume that Abraham didn't find an older servant in the amount of time. Because uh, no matter how long we are friends, you will, if you're older than me, you're always going to be older than me. And if you're younger than me, you're always going to be younger than me. And so it's it's probable that uh, Abraham didn't find or manufacture a servant who was somehow older than Eleazar. But that's that's poetically important because in Eleazar Eleazar's name literally is God is my helper, and in John fourteen the Holy Spirit is described as the helper. Also in John sixteen the Holy Spirit is spoken of by Jesus. He says. Jesus says concerning the Spirit, he does not speak on his own, but whatever he hears, he will speak. The Holy Spirit's job, the the gifts of the Spirit, the charismatic functions, the the working of righteousness in believers, that's not like a sideshow to the Christian faith. The Holy Spirit is primarily interested in bringing about a glorious bride for the Son. In verse 10 in this story, we see that the servant took 10 camels and a variety of goods. In the same way, the Holy Spirit brings blessings and gifts to the bride of Christ, that is the church. In verse 22, the servant gives a gold ring and two bracelets, or two arm, arm rings, if you will. Paul explains that in Ephesians, the Holy Spirit is given as a seal or an earnest or a down payment of our inheritance to come and so in this story when the ser- when you see the servant give to rebecca this nose ring which in the new american standard which we read from didn't call it a nose ring but it is and so again it's a hebrew thing it's not like western thing um we think nose rings are bad most of the world thinks nose rings are awesome i think they're pretty cute but um here here they get uh they get a you know she gets a nose ring from the servant as a pledge. I'm taking you somewhere better than what I'm giving you now. And so the Holy Spirit is given as a down payment uh, of our future inheritance in Jesus. In verse 53, there are more gifts that are given. The blessing of the Holy Spirit that comes to the bride of Christ does not just rest on the bride, but it affects the world around us. So this picture of the bride is now taking over in the story. In in verse three, we we see that this bride was coming from not from the Canaanites, but rather from Abraham's relatives. That is, the Canaanites symbolize the ways of the world, the ways of the flesh, the ways the ways in which man has attempted to bring about uh, righteousness or to carry out God's purposes. But Rebecca rather comes from Abraham's relatives and. Galatians makes the case that those who are of faith are Abraham's relatives or the, the seed of Abraham. That is, those who are of faith are related to Abraham. And the church or the word, the ecclesia is a called out assembly, or you can rephrase it, those who were called out. As in the very name of of the church, we call it the church, which is uh, kind of a Western term that really started in the German, with Kirk, uh, not Captain Kirk, just a Kirky, uh, it's K-I-R-C-H-E, Kirk, uh, it, it, it was more talking about a building. But in the, in the New Testament, the word for church, the word get, that gets translated as church, is ekklesia, and it is literally those who are called out. And so Rebecca here is called out of her family. In, in that account in John 3, we saw those who were called out by the preaching of John or the preaching of Jesus, called out into the desert to be baptized. And so it, those who respond in faith and in obedience to the Holy Spirit's voice in the call of the gospel are those who are a part of the church. The point that Rebecca is a is a picture of the church is further made clear in verse thirty in verse verse 40 or 55, her family attempts to make her stay a little bit longer. In the same way, the world system attempts to make those who are part of the church stay, comp- in, stay in states of compromise, not go fully with God to the fullest extent of his purposes for their lives. In verse 58, Re- Rebecca responds saying, I will go never having seen her bridegroom. She leaves her family and follows the servant. In the same way, we only see through a glass dimly. We see through a mirror in a dark manner, and we don't know fully what's, what awaits us. But the church responds in faith. We say, we will go. In verse 60, it is prophesied over Rebecca that she will possess the gates of her enemies. In like manner, Jesus in Matthew 16, 18 declares that the that he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In verse 64, when Rebecca sees her bridegroom, she veils herself. So too, when the church gains a greater revelation of the of the person of Jesus Christ, she adorns and covers herself with the righteous deeds that accord with faith. That is, the righteous deeds that go hand in hand with faith. In Revelation 19, 7-9, it says that the bride has made herself ready. She's clothed in white garments, echoing the language of Ephesians 5, that she's spotless and without wrinkle. And it says in Revelation 19 that the, righteous, that the white garments are the righteous deeds of the saints. And so, this, really, this morning is really a call to a response of faith. That is, I'm making the point today that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are baptized and move into a new way of living are those who are engrafted into the bride. And so we see that the bride, Rebecca, she responds in faith saying, I will go, having never seen her, her the man who is to become her husband. And my question to you this morning, my my questions to you this morning is, have you heard the word of the Lord in your life? Have you heard the message of the gospel? And if so, have you responded in faith? And do you know what responding in faith means? It's not primarily praying a sinner's prayer. It's not even necessarily having one significant spiritual experience. It's rather leaving your family, leaving your old banner of life. And when I say leaving your family, I mean in a poetic way, Rebecca left her family. And she went and followed the servant. And she went and lived in a different place. And this is all speaking of a necessary change in lifestyle that comes for those who would respond to the gospel. So my question to you this morning is, have you left your old manner of living? And are you tempted to go back? Because Abraham said "I want you uh, to his servant, I want you to promise me never to take my son back to that land. So with that, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would give us ears to hear what the spirit is saying to the churches right now. We ask you that you would turn us completely away from our old manner of living, that we would hear your wonderful, great calling and promise to us declared through your scriptures, that we would leave completely all forms of sin, that we would like Rebecca say, I will go and then we go that you would open our hearts and that you would cause us to desire to be seen as a special people for yourself. And we ask you, Father, that you would exalt your son through your word, that we would, Jesus, that as you did to those disciples on the road to Emmaus, that you would open our eyes to understand the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.